Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We normally record this show at the Well-Equipped Podcast Studio at Advent Coworking, right here in Uptown Charlotte in the Belmont community. But tonight, we have our first dinner and a podcast live at Poplar Tapas. So the little background noise you hear will be people eating, drinking, and enjoying themselves. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's live podcast, at our first dinner and a podcast at Poplar Tapas, we meet Tom Hanchett, author of Sorting Out the New South City, Race, Class, and Urban Development in Charlotte, 1875 to 1975, second edition. The New York Times says that Tom Hanchett's Sorting Out the New South City discovers surprising things about the development of Southern cities. And Southern Culture says of the book, This is a Southern story of the emergence of mercantile, industrial banking, and real estate entrepreneurs and how they shaped a city in an era of black disenfranchisement, Jim Crow, and the waning political power of white workers. Hanchett provides a broad context for understanding that the shape of our cities is far from happenstance. The re-release of the book serves as a call for cities not to forget their past as they chart their future. Tom starts the show with a reading from the preface to the second edition. How did Charlotte get segregated? It's a surprising story. When I started studying the city's older neighborhoods as a young researcher for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission way back in the 80s, I assumed that Charlotte and other southern cities had always been segregated. If not always, then surely since the end of the Civil War or perhaps the end of Reconstruction in the 1870s. But when I mapped this city's land use, rich and poor, black and white, I found that separate neighborhoods for each of those groups did not become a reality until around 1900. My maps before that period showed a city with no elite residential district, nothing that we would call an exclusive neighborhood. I'd never thought about that term, by the way. Uh, and, and it's just a, a synonym for good neighborhood, right? Uh, But even more surprising, my research showed that African Americans were dispersed throughout the city, not relegated to a black side of town. Now, when I'm talking about segregation, you may note I am thinking about two kinds of division. One is racial separation, which until recently meant black and white in most of the South, since immigrants were rare in this region until the last years of the 20th century. The other kind of segregation is economic segregation, where neighborhood populations are separated by income. Racial and economic segregation are not the same thing, 
though they often interact. Both kinds of seg segregation ramped up dramatically in the years around 1900 and continued to intensify throughout the 20th century. So 1900, why did things change around 1900? As I dug into that question, I learned about the deep economic depression of the early 1890s, which sparked a period of economic fear and political turmoil similar to the one following the Great Recession that we remember from 2008. Voters in the 1890s tried to change the political and economic system in a movement called the Fusion, supported both by African Americans and non-wealthy whites. But the Fusion sparked a backlash by the white elite. How dare you take government out of the hands of the men who own the property and put it in the hands of those who are ignorant and own no property? thundered the mayor of Charlotte. Wealthy leaders searched for what we would now call a wedge issue. The Charlotte Observer had a headline, 1898, White Supremacy Shall Be the Issue. Author Tom Hanchett came to Charlotte in 1981 to study older neighborhoods for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission. What began as a 14-month grant stretched into six years as Tom discovered the rich history of the city and did not think of itself as historic. Tom's UNC PhD dissertation in American history was the basis for his 1998 book, Sorting Out the New South City. After teaching at Emory University in Atlanta, Youngstown State in Ohio, and Cornell University in New York, Tom got the call from the fledgling Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte. In 16 years at the Levine Museum, Tom co-led the creation of a string of award-winning exhibitions. A Charlotte Magazine profile has called Tom Hanchett Charlotte's Doctor History and the magazine named him a Charlatan of the Year. Tom says this about the city and his book. Charlotte is nowhere near perfect, but knowing our history can help us understand that and take action to make things better. What Charlotte does have in great measure is a sense of possibility. In this fast-growing city, there's a shared feeling that people can make history. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurk Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Yeah, so everybody can hear us okay out there? All right, we'll crank it up if you can. All right, so tonight we're talking about and reading from this book uh, to find out how Charlotte got segregated. You said it's not by happenstance. It didn't... Nope, nope. Didn't, didn't People made by. decisions. So why did you take an interest in this topic, and why is that topic still relevant today, Tom? Well, um, I grew up in um, communities that were highly segregated, and I didn't really realize it. Um, I grew up in uh, upstate New York um, in a town that had almost no African-American people. Um, and then I went, uh, be, right before Charlotte, I was at uh, University of Chicago on the south side of Chicago, which is a, a little white 
enclave in one of the main African-American cities of the world. And when I got to Charlotte, um, I was just fascinated that segregation had a history, that segregation had not always existed. It took me by, totally by surprise. Mm. And you said, you said that people made decisions. And we're going to, tonight on this podcast, this book that uh, Tom does a great job of giving you the historical you know, land field here of what's going on, but we're going to break it into different time periods in history. Um, but I've got, a, I've got a question here, Tom. It's kind of a multiple choice since you taught school. I'll give it to you. Okay, so what do you think had the biggest... I hate multiple choice tests. Uh, what do you think had the biggest impact on causing segregation? We're going to come back when you answer this question and drill into each one of these. What do you think had the biggest impact on causing segregation? A, the movement away from center city living. B, Democratic Party politicians in the early 1900s. C, federal lending policies. D, urban renewal of the 50s and 60s, or E, something else? Can I choose all of the above? <laughs> that sounds like something uh, we would have done in school, right? See, see it, is, yeah. it is all of the above. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the book makes an argument that there's kind of a hinge, a hinge of history around 1900 because of this white supremacy campaign, um, something that, that our society has worked really hard to forget but is now being... Um, kind of exhumed by historians and people trying to understand where we are in terms of segregation. The, the, the changes, though, were not at one moment. They were not because of government. Uh, they were changes that um, resulted from a whole series of decisions that layered on top of each other and layered on top of each other, uh, decisions that we're still making in some cases. Um, till you get to the point where a sorted out city seems natural, where it, if, if, if folks are moving into your neighborhood with a, a different economic group or a different racial ethnic group or a different land use, a church, a school, a store, moving into my neighborhood, it's going to ruin everything. I'm going to lose my property values. Mm. And that's a learned thing. And that's a fascinating discovery. Yeah, so we're going to start early in time in Charlotte so you can get a picture of what this little hamlet looked like at one time. Uh, Tom takes us back to the time period of the 18th century when, when in fact, it was a trading hamlet. Uh, you know about I-85 and I-77. Well, they, they cross here, you know, for a reason, um, and Tom's going to tell us about that in, in the next read. So we have to start somewhere. So let's start in the 18th century. Charlotte's first white settlers arrived in 1753, choosing a hilltop site where two Native American trading paths crossed. The Catawba River flowed a few miles away, but the newcomers paid it little mind. Charlotte lay in the Carolina Piedmont region, the band of rolling hills betwixt the Appalachian Mountains to the west and the flat coastal plain of the Atlantic to the east. In the Piedmont, frequent waterfalls and rocky river rapids made rivers mostly unusable for transportation. Instead, settlers followed the example of the Catawba Indians before them and did their trading overland via the old native trail southward to the port of Charleston, still in use as Interstate 77, or the great trading path that ran northwest into Virginia, Interstate 85 today. To better attract the commerce of surrounding farmers, the settlers pushed for designation as a county seat. They named their village in honor of England's Queen Charlotte, promised to call the county after her birthplace of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, Germany, 
and for good measure designated their main thoroughfare Tryon Street to flatter the colonial governor. William Tryon granted the community its wish, signing Charlotte's official city charter as a courthouse town in 1768. By the time of the American Revolution, Mecklenburg County already was growing and processing enough corn and wheat to make it the military objective in the southern campaign of British General Lord Cornwallis. The mills in the neighborhood were supposed of significant consequence, wrote a British officer, to render it for the present an eligible position and in the future a necessary post when the army advanced. Cornwallis captured Charlotte, made it his base of operations, but found very little welcome from the local populace. As early as 1775, Mecklenburgers had defiantly published a document called the Mecklenburg Resolves, which declared all royal commissions, quote, null and void, and urged citizens to elect military officers, quote, independent of Great Britain. They had even, local tradition holds, signed a Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence a year before the United States officially broke with Britain. Quote, the counties of Mecklenburg and Rowan were more hostile to England than any in America, a British veteran of the Southern Campaign later remembered, with British troops suffering harassment at Charlotte and defeat at the nearby Battle of Kings Mountain. Lorne Cornwallis retreated, muttering that Mecklenburg was, quote, a hornet's nest of insurrection. Charlotte citizens proudly adopted the hornet's nest as their village's nickname. So can we get a little huzzah out there from the audience? Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. <laughs> All right, so we got, we got to start somewhere. So we started as a small hamlet, now ID-577, trade and trying. Um, but that's not really <clears throat> what launched us forward because as Tom talks about in this chapter, we had this thing that ran on rails. Can you talk about the importance of the railroad, Tom? I've got to tell you, it is so much fun reading my writing out loud. I've never done this before. <laughs> <laughs> All those years in front of the TV in Sesame Street learning to read out loud turns out to be useful. Particularly when it's dark up here, right? <laughs> Charlotte's success building a railroad economy put it at the forefront of a post-Civil War effort known as the New South Movement. Until the Civil War, many leading men of Dixie had disdained northern-style economic uh, enterprise. We have no cities. We don't want them. We want no manufacturers. We desire no trading, no mechanical and manufacturing classes orated one provident Texas planter. As long as we have our rice, our sugar, our tobacco, our cotton, we can command wealth to purchase all we want. Defeat in the Civil War wiped away that self-satisfied assurance. Southerners aggressively began to pursue northern-style industrial and urban development. Particularly along the new inland rail lines, factories sprang up in earnest starting in the 1880s. And it's really the rail lines that made Charlotte boom. Uh, we think of ourselves as a, an internet economy, but without the rail lines starting in the 1850s, this area would still be stuck in the backcountry. Uh, the city that got the best rail line was the one that was going to grow. Uh, if Lincolnton had had the rail line down to Charleston and over to Raleigh, we would be sitting here dining in Lincolnton today with the skyscrapers <laughs> outside. Uh, but instead, it was here. And when the Civil War was over, uh, those rail towns were the ones that grew. Counties that had once grown only cotton now built mills to spin it into thread and weave it into cloth. Promoters competed vigorously to trumpet the urban potential of every city and town. While they embraced a New South creed of economic progress, 
leaders did not adopt northern ideas wholesale. They endeavored to pick and choose those things that would enhance, but not remake, their familiar society. In particular, they sought to maintain the social pyramid. Such careful choices could be seen in the creation of Charlotte's early mills, mill worker housing, and in its first streetcar district during the 1880s and 1890s. So this was an interesting part of the book as I'm reading it because I didn't realize the impact that the railroad had on what was going on in the center city. The rails came right downtown, and you even had a cotton mill uptown, right? I don't yes. Know, did they call yep. it downtown or uptown back then? Um, <laughs> theoretically, it was uh, uptown because okay. it's on a hill. Uh, okay. The Indian trading paths ran along the ridgetop. So there's, right. there's history even behind that. So if you think about this, you've got the cotton mills downtown. You've got all the commerce coming through uptown. Um, we don't have suburbs yet. And so people are living together, right, Tom? Yeah. And you called it in your book the salt and pepper Sort yeah, it, I, I mapped land use um, in uh, 1875 at the end of the Civil War. Charlotte, because of the railroad economy, had gotten big enough so that they made a map of where everybody owned property. They published a city directory that showed every uh, property owner and, and their race and what they did for a living. And when I mapped that, there were no black or white neighborhoods. Uh, when I mapped that, there were no rich or poor districts. Everything was mixed up. And remember, this is after the Civil War and almost at the end of Reconstruction. And so what you intuitively would be thinking is, well, people are going to separate, right? But they were still living together. They were. And it wasn't just the old slavery time patterns because Charlotte uh, went on a boom with, between the railroads and the fact that the old southern centers like Charleston kind of collapsed when the slavery economy collapsed. Charlotte grew. Charlotte doubled in size between the 1850s and the early 1870s. And so they were building new stuff. If they wanted to build segregation, they would have built it, but they didn't. Ah, uh, yes, but somebody wants to live in the suburbs, right, Tom? So, yep. So we have to think about moving way outside the city to a place called Dilworth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's happening in the late uh, 1800s, and Tom's got a little read here about that he's going to share with us. On May the 20th, 1891, a throng whose size surely gladdened the heart of Edward Dilworth Latta turned out for the lot auction. Since revolutionary times, local citizens had set aside May the 20th, the anniversary of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, as a time for community celebration. Heretofore, said the Charlotte Chronicle, uh, they have been held in honor of sentiment only, but today we celebrate a new era, a new business era for Charlotte. Reporters counted 2,000 people in attendance as a team of professional real estate auctioneers from Tennessee ran their way up and down the streets of Dilworth, the new suburb. Along in front of them ran boys with red flags to mark the boundaries of the house lots. Behind and all about were people in hacks and buggies, on horseback and on foot, with maps in hand, eagerly bidding for the ground. There was no drag. The auctioneer's hack would stop in front of a lot, its dimensions and locations would be called out on a map. How much for so much for a front foot? The auctioneer would call out. Five, six, seven, seven, fifty-eight, ten, thirteen would come back. The quick response, sold. Newspapers don't write like that anymore. 
Dilworth announced a visiting reporter bids fair to become the resident portion of the city for Charlotte's Upper 400. Okay, so Tom, did that, did it take, I mean, I understand that they, they had this sale, but, uh, and, and by the way, one of the things you mentioned in the book is this is not going to be an exclusive neighborhood just for, for white people, right? I mean, they were all, it, it, it was... Dilworth um, messed with my whole notion of how suburbia was supposed to be. When Dilworth was laid out in 1891, it had big house lots along the main boulevard. The boulevard was supposed to run all the way around it. Part of the boulevard was known as East Boulevard. Part of it was known as South Boulevard. Part of it became known as Moorhead Street. And the fourth side would have been where Dilworth Road is. But those were big houses. But you went off the main streets, and the houses got littler. Um, and uh, one set of streets had African names, um, evidently to be sold to African Americans. A different part of the neighborhood, one of the first uh, lot buyers was a black church, and so there were African Americans in that part of the neighborhood. And then down South Boulevard, um, there were factories. And the folks who worked in the factories, very blue-collar people, lived in Dilworth as well. So the notion of an exclusive suburb Dilworth was a suburb, but it wasn't exclusive. Okay, so we're almost getting to 1900, and it doesn't look like Charlotte is moving towards segregation until something happens, right? And what you, is it? It's called fusion, right? Yeah. It's actually called the backlash to fusion, I think. Am I yeah. right about that? Yeah, yeah. So let's explain with this read a little bit about fusion, then we're going to come back and talk about that, because this is a very pivotal point in time for Charlotte in terms of becoming segregated. How many folks have heard of the fusion? Is this things that any, a few folks know about yeah, that? Yeah. How many folks have heard of something called the White Supremacy Campaign of 1898? Yeah. More folks. There's a community read going on right now, a book about the White Supremacy Campaign of 1898. The, the, the roots of it were an economic downturn that caused tremendous fear, um, tremendous uh, social upheaval. And out of that came a new party called the Populist Party. The Populist Party and the existing Republican Party fused, came together. Hard to believe that the parties then, Democrat, Republican, were kind of the opposite of what they are now. At that point, African Americans always voted for the Republican Party. But let me pick yeah, up And just the story to add more here. context, you have blue collar workers, you have African Americans, and they come together to form a voting bloc in the late 1800s which became this fusionist movement, and it knocked back the Democrats on their heels. These are not the same Democrats of today. It's a different form. They're, they're the white supremacy Democrats. They didn't like it. Let's read it, and we'll talk some more. All righty. Sorting out of land into separate neighborhoods might have continued gradually and haltingly in Charlotte, pushed forward by the growing size of the economy, but pulled back by faith and tradition if not for a series of political upheavals that rocked the region during the 1890s. Under the banner of the new populist party, voters at the base of the social pyramid, small farmers, new factory workers, African Americans, suddenly found their voice all across the South. In North Carolina, the populists and their allies in the Republican Party, now African Americans would vote for Republicans because... That was the party of Lincoln. And so think about an African-American voting bloc. Add to it now this populist bloc. By the mid-1890s, the populists and their allies in the Republican Party won control of the governorship in Raleigh, uh, both houses of the state legislature, 
voting out men of the elite who had long governed the state. To wealthy Southerners, the populist Republican challenge was all the more disturbing because it came not from outside the region as Reconstruction had, but from within. Old line Democrats lashed back with disfranchisement, laws that barred most African Americans and many poor whites from voting. And while disfranchisement solved the problem of politics, it could not wash away the stinging reality of the challenge itself. Over the course of a decade of bitter struggle in the 1890s, North Carolina's elite came to see their society as sharply at odds along class lines. It became painfully clear that lower-cased whites, that's a quote, and African Americans no longer felt deference toward, quote, the better classes. Prescribed rules of intercourse, which I quoted in an earlier passage, and respect for wealth and position, had only recently seemed ordered by providence, God-given. But by 1900, that traditional bedrock would lie shattered. And what Tom referred to earlier, we had an author on our show, Philip Gerard. He wrote a book called uh, Cape Fear Rising, where he explores the, the only coup in American history that happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. Basically, the white supremacists came in in red shirts and so forth, and they took over the government. They expelled a lot of African Americans, killed a lot of people, and took over the town of Wilmington. That was the environment at the time. And I guess one of my questions, Tom, is was the politicians were looking to gain back control of the governorship and the various offices. How, and, and that essentially led to the Jim Crow laws that followed, right? Right. And that then led to all of this segregation and the intense segregation that followed. Right. Until uh, I, I grew up in the segregated South um, and assumed it had always been that way. But here in Charlotte, I can remember separate white and colored waiting rooms at the train station, at the bus station. That was a new thing in 1896. Um, I uh, can remember African-Americans sit at the back of the bus before that, the back of the streetcar, that was a new thing. All across North Carolina, new law in 1903. Uh, down at the courthouse, you swear on a Bible in court. Suddenly in 1901, at the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, there were separate white and colored Bibles. And so this, this notion that society has to be separate is not something that happened because people like to be with their own kind or because the market was at work. Uh, it was something that was created. Add to that Elmwood Cemetery where they put up a fence to separate the black graves from the white graves, I assume for fear that the spirits might... And yeah, I what know. the dead black I people mean, and dead white people are going to be they doing, they need and, the defense. And how the hell could know. a fence take care of it? I don't understand that part. Anyway, so here's another problem that's going on at this time. The newspapers, all right? And this came out recently. I think that this was on Facebook. Ed Williams was talking about, somebody was talking about, he actually made an apology in editorial sometime when he was in that position as editor for the observer's actions in the early 1900s because you heard it in Tom's opening read as the Charlotte Observer headline teased out, white supremacy shall be the issue. And it led with headline after headline. You talk about that. I mean, it was just a, it's, they enabled uh, this all, all across North Carolina, um, this white supremacy campaign was run by uh, the, the best men, as they called themselves, 
um, abetted by the newspapers. And newspapers at that point made no attempt to be objective. Uh, the newspapers were funded, put forward as political party um, mouthpieces. And um, I, I don't know what you think about Fox News, but today Fox News functions much the way that newspapers did. Um, th there were no non-party-linked newspapers. And so the Charlotte Observer was very much um, on the side of the, the men of property. They were the advertisers and um, did everything it could to convince people that, um, that well, y you got problems in your society. Black people, that's who is causing the problems. If we just you know, push them off to one side, get them away from the ballot box, we will ennoble the ballot. That was what they said. In other words, what they did is they divided the vote they took the factory workers, blue-collar workers of all colors that were, had, had come together to form this fusionist block, and they said, we'll drive a wedge through it. And how are we going to drive a wedge through it? We're going we're gonna to start doubling down against black people. It led to, in 1900, the uh, writing of a new North Carolina constitution. Uh, same thing happened in most southern states within a year or two, one way or the other. Um, as of 1900 in North Carolina, you had to pay to vote. And I knew about this. So there was a fancy name for it. I could tell you the fancy name and everything. And, uh, but I missed the main point that you had to pay to vote. It's called the poll tax. Yeah, yeah. And there's a grandfather clause. But pay to vote. Who's going to have an easy time paying to vote? The guys at the top of the pyramid. Who's going to have a hard time paying to vote? Poor farmers, African Americans coming out of slavery. And if you could pay to vote, you also had to pass something called a literacy test which does not sound like voter suppression. Y'all are in favor of literacy. Probably many of you are literate. Um, you may have even read. <laughs> See um, how, kind, how he slipped that by you? Many of you yeah. are <laughs> But the, this would be easy. It would be a real easy test. I'm the registrar. All you had to do was be able to read and interpret the Constitution. <laughs> Y'all got that? Yeah, yeah. To the, to the satisfaction of the registrar. All right, so we got this foundation that's laid. We've got this wedge that's been driven. So this is going to start affecting people in terms of where they live. We're going to talk about some different isolated issues to where this actually magnified the problem. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. Fabi, I'm curious about your business and how you work with authors. Well, Landis, we specialize in working with professionals that have great purpose and a need to build a platform or grow a business. And you collaborate with them to help them tell their story? We do, and we find out where they are in the process, what skills they need, what resources they have, and we help them build beautiful and effective books and magazines as well. So there is a cost that goes into publishing a book but but yes. yeah but it's, it's a self-funded thing but it's an investment in order to help them share their vision their mission and their passion specifically for their business or to grow their platform yeah and you've been doing this a while and you've gotten a lot of awards how many awards have you gotten oh since you... i think if we were to count it'd be about 210 along that line yeah and you like doing this you like helping people tell their stories we do it's um it's really a, a personal passion of mine and built a business around it but it's really more to get that information and great knowledge out to specific audiences so if I've got a story to tell, uh, part of my business story or my personal story, and I want to get in touch, how do I do that? Sparkpublications.com or reach us directly at info at sparkpublications.com. 
Well, let, let me talk sure. about uh, right after 1900, when you start uh, out in the suburbs, places like Central Avenue, where I live in Plaza Midwood, um, Dilworth, Myers Park, um, all of those new neighborhoods got restrictive covenants written oh, yeah. into their deeds. The deed restrictions. And it says literally in the deed that this property shall be used only by members of the Caucasian race, which is racial segregation, but also for a house costing not less than X number of dollars, which is economic segregation. And so you start getting separate neighborhoods that are identified in the restrictive covenants. You get neighborhoods um, that are, are African-American, like the Brooklyn neighborhood downtown. But you also get white working class neighborhoods. Uh, NoDOT um, was developed in 1903 as a working class neighborhood. A downtown minister, one of the men of property and standing, um, said uh, in a sermon in the newspaper that just at this point in the development of the mill people, the working class folks who'd voted for the fusion. Perhaps it is better to let them form a, a class to themselves with their own churches, their own schools, rather than mix promiscuously with the better class. Yeah. And so this is already underway as the 20th century is gaining steam, and then you hit the Great Depression. Yeah, and, and, and Myers Park is one of these neighborhoods that was actually developed specifically with this in mind, with all these deed restrictions, to make an exclusively white neighborhood. Exclusively? Yeah, exclusively. There's the exclusive neighborhood yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And, and it wasn't until the 60s or so when court cases started coming into play. That, I mean, they're still on the books. You can go search the titles. You can find the deeds that are there. But they've been challenged, and now they're null and void. But in order for people to buy houses, no matter what neighborhood it was in, what would you have to do? Go to a bank, right? Yeah. And to go to a bank, the bank's going to do its credit check. And they're going to have their credit check list, and they're going to have federal government lists. And what they're going to do is look to see what the credit risk is. Talk about that, Tom. Well, what you have in front of you are two different maps. Uh, the green map is the Wedge and Crescent map, uh, kind of Charlotte's economic uh, divisions today. Can you see the wedge kind of triangular shape down at the bottom there? The crescent is the lighter area across the middle of the county really two different Charlottes economically. Well, the multicolored map is from uh, the late 1930s, and it's what came to be called redlining. What they were doing was mapping credit risk, which does not sound nefarious. It wasn't intended to be nefarious. The mortgage market froze. Remember it did that in 2008? Banks were scared to lend. And so what the feds did was they sent people around to every American city, talked with the real estate leaders, the men of property and standing who knew real estate, and said, where are the good credit risk neighborhoods? If you know anything about credit, you make loans to people that have money. That's the way it works. And so these, these are maps, green, blue, are maps that show Dilworth, Elizabeth, uh, Myers Park, Eastover, Plaza Midwood, where I live, Charlotte Country Club. Um, and in those areas, it became really easy to get a home loan because the feds had put the stamp of approval on. But the feds also colored particular areas red and yellow. If there were any African Americans, even like one African American on a block, it was colored red. And up around Johnson C. Smith University, you've got college professors. And it's really hard, unless you have cash money, to become a homeowner in a mixed neighborhood or an African-American neighborhood. And so what this redlining does is it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
in which some neighborhoods blossom uh, with lots of homeowners and all wealth building and all that stuff, and then another side of town, not so much. Yeah, and if you think about this, uh, Tom, if I'm right, uh, what happens is in those neighborhoods that can borrow, they're building equity in their homes that they can then pass along to their children. However, in these neighborhoods that have been marked red and yellow, they can't borrow. They cannot then build that equity. And now some people might say, well, you know, we're pull we did it. Why can't you do it? And the reason you can't do it is because we got in your way with all the credit analysis. Am I right about that? And, and it, it seems so long ago, but um, my wife and I just paid off our house. And if you paid off your house, you know how hard you work. And years and years and years and, you know, the Peter and butter sandwiches at the end of the month and all of that. And, um, but when we paid off the house, I realized, I thought back how I got into the house and my dad gave me a loan, which I paid back for part of the down payment. And my dad was a white guy who lived in a non-redlined neighborhood. So he if, had the equity built up. He could loan you the money. He can loan me the money. All right, we're going to have to shift here to another time period. This one is particularly troubling. Um, Y'all may know about this area of town uh, in Charlotte, uh, down where the old school board used to hang out and do their business, Marshall Park, uh, Adams Mark, that area. That was at one time a booming African-American neighborhood known as Brooklyn. And some in the white community, Tom, if I got this right, saw it as blight and decided we needed to bring in bulldozers, right? And knock it all down. So here's a little read Tom's got about urban renewal. Nice fancy term for tearing up people's neighborhoods. But if you'll read that for us, and then we'll talk. Yeah, I, I grew up in the urban renewal area era, and that's another answer to you why I'm in this was that in the little town I grew up in, suddenly there was federal money in the late '60s to demolish blight, and they tore down stuff that didn't get rebuilt for a generation. Well, when I came to Charlotte. There was this big green space with a lot of parking in it and uh, Marshall Park, which is real nice, but nobody goes there because there's nothing on it and, and a government building or two. And that area had been cleared through urban renewal. So that was one of the things that fired me up. Urban renewal efforts in Charlotte first targeted Brooklyn, the historic African-American neighborhood just east of downtown. Some homeowners, a lot of rundown rental property. Why was there rundown rental property? Because of redlining. Back in 1912, as early as 1912, far-sighted men, quote, had declared, quote, this section, because of its proximity to the center city, must sooner or later be utilized by the white population. They had their eye on it that early. Federal money finally put that dream within reach. Between 1960 and 1967, the Charlotte Redevelopment Authority raised every bit of Brooklyn in five stages. Over the following decades, the cleared land became the site of Charlotte's government plaza buildings, a showplace city park, widened thoroughfares con connecting the downtown with the east side, plus a variety of private office and business ventures. The Brooklyn Redevelopment Project made no pretense at creating better quarters for residents. Not one single new housing unit went up to replace the 1,480 structures that fell to the bulldozer. 
urban renewal demolition displaced 1,007 Brooklyn families. Most moved to the western and northern sectors of the city. Belmont, Villa Heights, the white working class area just north of downtown abruptly became a black neighborhood in the mid-1960s. Wesley Heights on the west side, Wilmore to the southwest experienced similar transformations. Brooklyn's entrepreneurs had less luck at relocation. The old district's density and its central location had provided a warm environment for small shops, both on the Black Main Street along 2nd and Brevard and on street corners throughout the neighborhoods. Urban renewal displaced 216 Brooklyn businesses, most never reopened. Now, Tom, you said this was one of the things that got you really fired up about this project. Why? Um, didn't seem fair. Um, and today with the center city booming, I mean, there are folks in here, are friends of Fourth Ward. Have friends of Fourth Ward, put your hands up. Mm -hmm. You can remember when there was one much down here. And uh, Cameron Holtz over there is putting together a picture book of Fourth Ward. She has these amazing pictures of this neighborhood when there'd be like, one house on the block because everything had been else torn down. And Brooklyn was even worse than that. And just as a, a person came up at the time of, of Earth Day and the notion that you would have a whole city where the, the part of it that is most easy for us to get to by public transportation, by walking, by bicycle, is empty, that, that offended me. And then there's the whole thing you're talking about, the structure of opportunity and, and mm -hmm. passing along wealth. And you know, the, the, I'm starting to get angry again. So uh, another person who didn't think it was fair is a, is a well-known lawyer from the Charlotte area, Julius Chambers. And he came along at a time when uh, James McMillan, a federal district court judge, was sitting on the bench uh, who actually was a member of Charlotte Country Club, but who took uh, a lot of flack for the decision that he handed down, Swan versus Board of Education, which uh, became, you know, an opinion that changed people's lives in this town and how they got to school. Swan versus Mecklenburg, uh, folks are beginning to forget it now, which is hard to believe, but it's true, um, was the national test case for court-ordered busing for racial balance. Uh, why did you need something like that? Well, because segregation had been created in part by these government decisions. And that is the core of what the lawyer Julius Chambers argued. He said, we need to have government involved in undoing segregation because government through all of these ways that the book lays out, um, I didn't realize I was following in Julius Chambers' footsteps. Um, I, I thought this was you know, original research, which it is, um, but I'm using the same argument that ended up being the busing argument. And we, had, we were going to have a, a read here, but we're, we're tighter on time. But we want to talk about this for just a minute. The thing that I found interesting was Judge McMillan wrote, although initially skeptical in his final ruling, he, he wrote that a pattern of low-cost housing and industry to the west and high-cost housing with some business and office developments to the east had been fostered by people, right? By local zoning ordinances starting in 1947, by the, the federal programs that have gotten to the point where Negro residents, this is quoting McMillan, have been almost entirely concentrated in one quadrant. And if 
government concentrated folks, government could deconcentrate folks. So he was, as I said, skeptical, but then when Julius Chambers presented the facts, many of which we've been talking about tonight, laid it out for him with these maps and everything, Judge McMillan said, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. <laughs> and then the Constitution doesn't support that. And he, and he entered this ruling, but then we kind of have, your book only goes up to 1975, but some things happened after that to reverse this, right? Yeah, the, uh, the book ended in 1975 because by that point you could see the wedge and crescent pattern. It was even more pronounced then than it is now. Uh, there was a, a black side of the crescent um, on the other side of Tryon Street. There was a, a white side of crescent on the, on the uh, Central Avenue side. And what's happened since then is that pattern is beginning to break down. You can see it still in the older areas. Take a look at your map there and you'll see where the, the redlining map is within the big green map. But go out to the edges of the big green map and you'll see that in areas um, over to the west side, um, what's now Steel Creek. Um, when I came to Charlotte, I was told that, that people with money and choice would never live west of downtown. They are. People with money and choice would never live north of downtown. And they are. And so the, the book ends with a, a call to make choices in our own time, not to be a prisoner of history, but to realize that people got us where we are, and we are people. Okay, so we got a little segment here called The Writing Life, and then we'll have one final quick read. Uh, we might have time for a few questions from the audience here. Writing Life stuff. Did you enjoy writing this book, uh, or was it just some PhD thing you had to get done? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it's hard work. Um, Carol Sawyer, my wife over there, um, supported me for six years at uh, Chapel Hill while I went through the Ph.D. program. Most of a Ph.D. program is writing a darn book mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just sitting there. and You, you have to sit there until it's written. Um, and uh, it was really cool putting together all of these pieces to create the story um, every piece of stuff that I knew about Charlotte, one way or another, got, got uh, woven in here. And so it was very much a revelation. I was learning stuff, not just with the research, but in the way that things came together. But I can remember when we got the, the final manuscript from UNC Press, and you sit down, you have to index it. I was ready to give up the whole thing. <laughs> just, I didn't want to see it again. Well, so this is the second edition many, many years later. I looked at it. I was looking for like a, okay, it's the 20th or the 25th or the 30th. But no, it's the 22nd year. So why the 22nd year? Well, it got old enough so it could vote and buy uh, alcohol, and I figured it <laughs> needed to send it out on its own. No, seriously, we wanted to write a, a new preface. UNC Press um, brought this out. We found a, a grant, and I'm taking no royalties Profits that, that if you buy one tonight or you buy most places around town, uh, a lot of the proceeds go to Levine Museum in the New South. And um, wanted to bring the story up to the present, talk about immigration, which was barely a thing in the 1990s, talk about uh, the continued um, arguments over school assignment. We thought that was going to be done when they ended busing in the 90s. Nope. Um, and um, you know, talk about affordable housing which is, as Landis Wade has said, really grows out of the inequities that had been sowed in our parents' and grandparents' time. And one of the things you'll find in this book, uh, and you can flip through it at the end, Tom's going to sign it for anybody who wants them, there are a lot of great pictures in this book of, of historic and their maps and different periods of time that you'll, you'll find very interesting. But back to writing for a second, 
Uh, way back in the olden days when you wrote this book, you didn't have the same kind of software, compute. Did you write it by hand or what? I mean, I, not only. <laughs> I, um, no, I had a, a, a mule drawn pen. <laughs> you dipped it in tar yeah. and then the mule dragged it along. It an ink, ink well, a, a ink yellow, well, a yellow yeah, legal yeah, pad okay, and, right. and plowed up the. Uh, yeah. I wrote this on a PC. Yeah. Um, I wrote, actually wrote it on a Mac. Uh, okay. the, was it a Mac, Carol? Uh, yeah, and, um, and it was essential to be able to do that because in the middle there are color maps and the color maps are based on the city directory research. What I did is I sat down and I hand entered um, thousands of city directory things and then I sorted them and then I put pins into a map because they didn't have the mapping software yet. But without um, having my own little desk computer, this book would not happen. And uh, without Carol teaching me how to, um, I'm, I'm not a computer person, um, but she figured out how to teach me how to use the computer, and um, I'm still doing it. Okay, a couple of quick more writing life questions. You're a food blogger, too. You write these short I pieces. I eat every day. Okay, and, and, and you do these longer pieces. What's the difference in writing a short piece like that and tackling something like this? Short pieces get done. <laughs> there, there is a high that I get when the writing is done before I realize how bad it is. You know, there's that moment when, oh, it's done, and oh, man. And then, um, and so uh, the food from home column that I do for the Charlotte Observer that Carol's put up on the historysouth.org website um, is, is kind of like um, the pleasure that I used to get doing my laundry every week. You know, something's <laughs> done. And then you have this bigger thing that's, that's big cloud holding over you. All right, Tom, you've been, you're Mr. Charlotte History, you've written history books, you've written food blocks, whatever, you've been at this for a while. What would you tell your younger writer self, something you now know about writing, that if you had known it then, it would have been a little bit easier for you? Write something. Um, when I have students, um, they're often trying to, to find out the next thing, find out all the pieces of the story. The sooner you start writing, the better. Um, I had a, a brilliant professor at Chapel Hill who said, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write. And I, I'm not quite sure I fully understand what he said, but um, part of it is, is putting all the pieces together and creating a story that, that moves somewhere. Um, you see the pieces that you don't have that you need, um, but you don't get bogged down in, uh, in looking for all the other pieces. So we got a short final read, but does anybody have any questions? Uh, Shout it out, and I'll repeat it. To multiple choice? Yeah, multiple choice. Yeah. Okay. A. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in reverse order. Something about being drunk and sober when you write. I don't know. Um, <laughs> me and alcohol don't get along, and so um, I admire people who can do the drunk history thing, but that's, it's not me. Um, she asked uh, whether I was satisfied with the book. Um, I'm smug about the book. It's well written. Um, I pick it up. I learn stuff. I'm, I'm far enough out from it now that I don't remember writing it. And that's kind of a magical moment because um, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's a really a, a cool thing. Uh, what, you know, to the extent that, that this is a Charlotte story, it's not. It's a national story. This is America. This is not just the South. I'm focusing on Charlotte. I'm picking on Charlotte because I love Charlotte, and I know Charlotte. 
Um, but if, um, you know, if you're getting ready to leave tomorrow and go someplace halfway across the country, you should buy a book because it's going to tell you about the place where you land as long as you're in these United States. And I think one of the questions had to do with something we could do today to move forward. Being intentional. Um, I, I, th I think all of us assume that the, the system is going to get us where we want to go. And understanding that the system is, is not dictated by um, immutable laws. It's dictated by people's decisions. Um, in some ways, it's real frustrating. Yeah. Why did they do that? Um, but trying to understand why they did that, I think, gives us each a power to be history makers. Any other audience questions? Yes. What would you recommend if you want to be that history maker? Uh, I, I think Re repeat that, that um, question, if you would. To, uh, uh, how can you be a history maker in your own hometown? Um, a thing that's going on in a very big way that I like a great deal is the uh, work towards affordable housing, which used to be our affordable housing was just old neighborhoods. But now, as folks move in to those old neighborhoods, they change. This city is, is getting together, both nonprofits, government, and uh, the philanthropic sector, corporations, and we're raising money to build affordable housing. Didn't think we needed to do that. We're learning that we do. And so that's a, a big thing that, that we all are involved in as much as we want to be. Smaller thing, you know, we're a city where it's real easy to be a prisoner of your zip code. It's real easy to be in your bubble. Uh, get out of your bubble. Uh, Carol and I do this thing. When our, our daughter was little, we would at least once a week, we would go to a restaurant or a grocery store in a part of town that we'd never been to. And, you know, Vietnamese grocery store, an African-American grocery store, a, um, a, a, a Middle Eastern bakery, um, and um, eat some food that we weren't familiar with, which all turned out to be good, and, uh, and meet some people. Anybody else have a question? All right, we've got a, about a one-minute read to kind of wrap this up tonight, and uh, I think it kind of it's sort of an uplifting part. We've been, we've been doing a lot of down stuff, right? So let's, let's get on the uplifting side here, Tom. As charlatans and city dwellers elsewhere across the country look toward the 21st century, it is not at all clear which vision of the ideal city will triumph, separation or diversity. Will charlatans find ways to bridge the distances that have been created between black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, between impoverished areas and wealthy suburbs? Will they find ways to overcome the distrust and the fear that distance can breed? As Americans grapple with such issues, they can perhaps take heart from history. Separation by race and class has not been a constant in urban affairs, as Charlotte's story shows. It came as the product of particular concerns at particular times in the past. People created that separation. Their actions came at a moment around the turn of the century when new social forces, unleashed by industrialization, seemed to threaten familiar hierarchies. People reinforced that separation again and again through much of the 20th century, spurred on by a host of federal programs that are lar now largely abandoned. What people have created, they may choose to recreate. 
So you can find out more about uh, Mr. Charlotte history uh, in the show notes. We'll have links to his website. Uh, we'll have some photos from tonight. Uh, let's give Tom a round of applause. If we could, yeah. So, and I want to, in addition to thanking Tom for being here, I want to thank you all for coming to our first ever dinner and a podcast. I hope the food was good. Did everybody enjoy the food tonight? Yes. Yeah, so it was a little crowded in here, but we made it. Well, we're all comfy here, so hang around. Tom's got some books. Hang around. We'll talk some more. Thanks again. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>